Okay. So this morning we're looking at Hebrews 3. And I'm going to read it from the message. And I'm not going to put the words on the screen. So you can close your eyes if you want and listen. Or you can just stare ahead, whatever you want. So my dear Christian friends, companions in following this calling to the heights, take a good hard look at Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe, faithful in everything God gave him to do. Moses was also faithful, but Jesus gets far more honor. A builder is more valuable than a building any day. Every house has a builder, but the builder behind them all is God. Moses did a good job in God's house, but it was all servant work getting things ready for what was to come. Christ as Son is in charge of the house. Now if we can only keep a firm grip on this bold confidence, we are the house. That's why the Holy Spirit says, today, please listen. Don't turn a deaf ear as in the bitter uprising, that time of wilderness testing. Even though they watched me at work for 40 years, your ancestors refused to let me do it my way. Over and over they tried my patience. And I was provoked, oh, so provoked. I said, they'll, let, they'll never keep their minds on God. They refuse to walk down my road. Exasperated, I vowed. They'll never get where they're going. Never be able to sit down and rest. So... Watch your step, friends. Make sure there's no evil unbelief lying around that will trip you up and throw you off course, diverting you from the living God. For as long as it's still God's today, keep each other on your toes so sin doesn't slow down your reflexes. If we can only keep our grip on the sure thing we started out with, we're in this with Christ for the long haul. These words keep ringing in our ears. Today, please listen. Don't turn a deaf ear as in the bitter uprising. For who were the people who turned a deaf ear? Weren't they the very ones Moses led out of Egypt? And who was God provoked with for 40 years? Wasn't it those who turned a deaf ear and ended up corpses in the wilderness? And when he swore that they'd never get where they were going, wasn't he talking to the ones who turned a deaf ear? They never got there because they never listened, never believed. So, the book of Hebrews is an important study because it looks at the transition from Old Covenant thinking to New Covenant freedom. And this is very relevant for today because many Christians have been taught a distortion of Christianity, which is a mixture of the two. New Covenant grace plus just a liberal sprinkling of Old Covenant legalism. 
In reality, this aberration of Christianity believes that we are saved by grace, but then made righteous by our works. Many people will say, well, no, I don't really believe that that's true. And yet, often, their language and their lifestyle project the very difference that this is true. And this was a problem in the early church. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians. Remember when he wrote to the Galatians? In, I'm going to read Galatians 3. Again, I'm not putting the words on the screen. But I'm reading from the Mirror Bible. Verses 1 to 5, which says, Galatians, Galatians, have you completely lost your common sense? Can't you see how the law has bewitched you and blurred your vision to destroy the revelation of what the cross of Christ accomplished in you? This was so clearly predicted in Scripture. How can you not be persuaded by the truth? Please, would you reason with me on this one issue? On what basis did you receive the Holy Spirit? Are we talking gift or reward here? What kind of message ignites faith? What a condemned sinner and failure you are as revealed in the law? Or what God believes to be true about you as revealed in the gospel? Let's not confuse law with grace. Can you see how stupid it would be to start in the spirit and then for some crazy reason to switch back to DIY mode again? As if your own works could add anything to what God has already done in Christ. Remember how you felt when you first encountered faith? Are you prepared to exchange that for religious sentiment? All the ground you've gained would be lost. Would you give credit for what you have received from God to something you did or to something you have heard? Did God reward you for your high moral standards when he worked extravagant miracles in you and lavished his Or did it perhaps have anything to do with the content of the revelation of the message of grace that you have heard? Faith is the source of God's action on man's behalf. Our hearing is the channel of what God's faith reveals. As we look at Hebrews, and one of the reasons why we chose Hebrews was because it's all to do with covenants and understanding the old covenant and the new covenant. So it's worth us revisiting and restating some of the covenant teaching that we've seen recently. And hopefully, this will minimize some misunderstanding. I want to say, I said, as I said to the group last night, I'm going to say it to you this morning. I am totally happy for you to disagree with anything that I say, okay? I'm totally happy with that. I don't mind you being wrong, okay? <laughs> I'm quite cool, I'm quite cool with that. But it is a tad frustrating, and yet this is the preacher's curse, that folks disagree with what I haven't said. Not what I've missed out, but what they thought I'd said when I spoke, but I, those words never crossed my lips. It can be really, really frustrating. I mean, we're all on a journey with God. 
And I'm sharing my theological journey with you right now. I would disagree with, three years ago, I would disagree with what I'm going to say today. Okay? That's just where I'm at. You know, I'm on a theological journey with you, and I'm sharing that with you, so that's either good for you or it's bad, I'm afraid. <laughs> but you're going to get it, you see? You're going to get it. Right? It makes me a little bit vulnerable because, in a sense, I'm sharing something with you that I'm only just walking in or beginning to walk in. And in many ways, I'm sharing the edge of my revelation. Right? So sometimes it's not completely thought through. So if you want to, you can destroy me over coffee if you want. Right? Like last night. You can destroy me over coffee if you want. But we're all on a journey and you're going to get what I've got. Okay? Grace and law. Grace and law. So a lot of Christians have been brought up with this mixture of the grace of God, but just a little bit of law mixed in there. You know, it's almost as though the church likes to keep it in there just to keep people down a bit. You know, we can't let them go too wild. You know, we can't let them discover what real freedom is. They'll, be, they'll blow up. They'll blow up. So let's put, a bit of, let's put a bit of legalism in there. Let's go through rules in there. You know, you've got to jump through this hoop and that hoop, right? So the question is, how do we know whether we are unwittingly living under the law? Because many of us are good, upright folk, and we believe what we've been told, you see? So here are a few indicators which may or may not help. For example, as Christians, do you ever think that you may not be totally forgiven? Okay? Or do you feel rejected, guilty, condemned, unworthy? Or, and this one's the most controversial of the three, but do you treat the Bible like an instruction manual? <laughs> like a Haynes manual, you know, NIV. Because the truth is that God doesn't do forgiveness in installments, right? It's not like the catalogue. It's not HP, you know, get a bit now and then you'll get a bit next week and then the week after. If you're good, if you pay your dues, you'll get a bit more forgiveness, right? God doesn't do forgiveness in installments. At the cross, all your sins were forgiven. And that word there, all, in the original means all. all. Colossians 2 verse 13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. All our sins. And even the ones that you haven't committed yet. The ones that you're going to commit next week are already forgiven. Already forgiven. Madness. Some Christians find that hard to accept. But if you think about it, in relation to the cross, when it happened as a historical event, all your sins were future sins, weren't they? Yeah, yeah of course they were. In fact, you were born forgiven. It's amazing if you think about it. You were born forgiven. I'm now swapping to some new notes that they didn't get last night. I mean, let's scale this down because not only were you born forgiven, everybody was born forgiven. If we scale this down for the ease of thinking, that everyone alive today was born forgiven. 
wherever they are, right? Regardless of race, religion, billions of people were born forgiven. Let's take this one step further. Sin has no bearing on their eternal destiny because they've been forgiven. Beginning to feel uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Am I sensing it? I mean, there are, of course, consequences to sin in the sense that we do stupid things and it, it, it has stupid effects on our lives, on other people's lives, even on the planet, right? But from God's perspective, sin has actually been dealt with. From God's perspective, sin is no longer an issue. It's more of an issue for the church. goes on about it all the time. <laughs> but from God's perspective, sin is an old issue that he dealt with at the cross, right? Done and dusted, finished, right? So, you may ask or you may be thinking, does this mean that everyone will go to heaven? Am I preaching universalism here on the quiet? No. No, he said no, right? (laughs) That's not yes, that's no. Because, surprise, surprise, there will be forgiven people in hell. Wow. Wow. Under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Law, everything came down to performance, performance, performance. Do, 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 don't do, don't do, don't do. Right? That's how you can almost sum up the law. Performance, performance, performance. Salvation is not based on being forgiven, but belief in Jesus. That's where the rubber hits the road. And now the barrier is not sin, the barrier is unbelief. Right? Unbelief. Repentance, which the church likes to sometimes drag out, is not a finger-wagging rebuke to scare you into the kingdom, you know. I mean, I've been at me. I remember I became a Christian in my 20s and then went to a meeting and almost went forward again because this bloke told me that unless you confessed all your sins, if Jesus comes tonight, where will you end up? There was, he was scaring people into the kingdom. Or trying to, anyway. So repentance is not a finger-wagging rebuke to scare you into the kingdom. It's not a plea for you to turn, your, turn from your sins lest you fall into the hands of an angry God if Jesus returns. No, repentance is what the word means, which is change your thinking. Think differently. That's what repentance means, to think differently. So from my perspective, my understanding is that the good news, in essence, is God loves you, and in Christ has forgiven all your sins. It is a done deal. It's a done deal. So change your thinking. Change your thinkings. Believe in Jesus. Receive the Holy Spirit. And as a new creation, allow him to live his life through you. That's the good news. That is the good news as far as I'm concerned. None of this finger wagging. Right, back on track now. Not only are all your sins forgiven, but God went even further than that. He said, 
He's chosen to remember them no more. So when you keep whittering on to him about his sins, he's <laughs> going, what? What are you talking about? Not that he's got old and a bit, you know, gaga, because he is very old if you think about it. But he, he consciously chose not to remember your sins. No more. No, because why clutter your life with irrelevancies? It's an irrelevancy for God's sin. He's dealt with it totally. So therefore, you can be 100% sure that you are 100% forgiven. And you should never ever feel rejected, guilty, condemned or unworthy. Because condemnation is a sign of a life based on the law. And we shouldn't be there. Before the cross, Adam's sin meant condemnation for all. Before the cross, God held us responsible for our sins. But there is only one thing guaranteed to clear a guilty conscience, and that is the blood of Jesus. And that blood was shed at Calvary. Galatians 5 Verses 16 and 17 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law. We shouldn't treat the Bible like an instruction manual. Okay? You shouldn't read it to find out what to do. Okay? God wants us to have a relationship with Him. They want, he wants us to have a relationship with Jesus, the living Word, the living word and we should read scripture not for intellectual edification and dare I say like I did last night you should not even read scripture for guidance Ooh, because that depends on your interpretation of scripture you could lead yourself down the garden path easily totally not for guidance at all we should only read scripture to take us closer to understanding who Jesus is, to draw us closer to Jesus. If our Bible study doesn't draw us closer into the presence of Jesus, we're doing something wrong. That's what we should be reading scripture about, to get closer to him, to discover him. Our God is a God of relationship. He's not standoff, he's not aloof, he's not distant, he's not mysterious. He's closer than our very breath. And he lives within us. He is totally committed to you. Amen. Humanity was created in God's image and therefore we are social beings. The relationships that we have one to another and with other people show differing degrees of intimacy and differing degrees of importance. So you have like you could, a stranger or an acquaintance or a friend, or a good friend, or a boyfriend, or a fiancé, or a husband and a wife. Differing degrees of intimacy. Different types of relationships as we intermingle as social beings. The more important a relationship is, the more we define it with ceremony and words. And the same is true of God. Think of the fuss we make over a wedding, and all the preparation that goes into that. The more important a relationship is, the more we actually surround it with ceremony and words. The Bible is not an account of human history. It's the story of God's relationship journey 
with humanity because he doesn't want a fleeting, casual relationship. He wants a covenant relationship with us. Covenant. Now, which ones of you, see if you can do better than the last night, can remember the three types of covenant in the Old Testament? I don't mean like the Abrahamic and Noah and all that type of stuff. I mean the type of covenant. Anybody remember? Vassals one. But they came up with vassal last night as first as well. Any others? There's three. Vassal, two others. Kinship. What about the last one? That's the ironically it's the best one. But Grant. He was here last night, see. <laughs> Grant. Yep. If you remember we did I did some teaching and there's three types of covenant in the Old Testament. There's a grant covenant, there's a kinship covenant, and there is something called a vassal covenant, right? Now a grant covenant, just quickly go through it. A grant covenant is when a greater and a lesser person came into covenant agreement and the greater one took on all the obligations of the agreement and the lesser one just had only to receive the benefits of that relationship, right? And that's the type of covenant that God had with Abraham and with Noah, okay? Then there was the kinship covenant, which is usually between two equal parties, and this is a bit like a marriage relationship, where there's two equal parties and there's certain obligations that are shared between the two parties, and both take these equally divided obligations and fulfill them. So that's a kinship covenant. And then a vassal covenant is when a greater and a lesser person come into agreement because of the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. Okay? And in, but instead of that destruction, the greater one offers the lesser one in exchange for the ability, life, for in exchange for the ability to collect taxes or to have slaves and things. So that when a king takes over a neighboring kingdom, instead of wiping them all out, they come into an agreement where he will, he will let them live if they will live in some way a life of servitude towards him. So that's very quickly those three types of covenant relationship. The important thing to remember from our perspective is that God always lives and relates within the covenant he establishes. I should almost make you repeat. I think I will. Let's repeat this. Okay. Repeat after me. Are you ready? God always lives, God and, always relates lives. and relates within the covenant he establishes. Now, it's important that we understand that. Otherwise, we're going to get very confused when we study the Bible. Right? We need to understand that because it's key to understanding how God acts and how God is with his people because he is consistent with the covenant that he has created and lives in. We'll get back to that in a minute. See, you may remember, but God offered the people of Israel. Moses had dragged them out of Egypt and the whinging and moaning lot were going along and God offered them a, he offered the, the Israel a grant relationship, a grant covenant. He said, I'm offering you this relationship. He wanted them to come into relationship with him. He wanted them to share his presence, right? That's what he put on the plate for them. And initially they said, what a good idea, let's go for it. And then they started to prepare, and then during the preparation, God spoke audibly from, from, from the mount, and it scared the pants off them. They heard 
the voice of God, and they retreated. They, they came back and they said to Moses, I think we want to change our minds on this one, Moses. You know, we would rather you go and represent us and talk to God and then come back with the rules, how he wants us to live, and then we will obey those rules. Okay? And that's what they did. So they turned down a presence, getting into God's presence and being in relationship with him for rules and regulations. And if you think about it, we can be a bit like that with God. Sometimes we are afraid of getting too close to God. Sometimes we're afraid of what's the implications of getting too close to God, taking that next step. What's he going to want me to do? What's he going to demand of me? What impact is it going to have on my life? So therefore, we step back. We step back and think, I'll just stay where I am. I know where I am. So Israel backed off and chose rules over relationship. Again, something which some of us are happier to have in our life. Rules, traditions, systems, rather than relationship with a living God. Because the thing about rules is they are predictable. With rules, you know what's going to happen next week. With a living relationship with God, you haven't got a clue what's going to happen next week. And that can be scary. It's like trying to nail down the wind. You haven't got a clue. So some people like the protection of rules and regulations and traditions. So what they'd done unwittingly, they had turned down this fantastic offer of a grant covenant and who knows how it would have changed the history, biblical history, if they'd have you know, gone with it. They turned it down and, and instead said to God, let's enter into a kinship agreement, a kinship covenant. And that's what they did. They entered into a kinship covenant with God. Now, I'm afraid we have to go into a little bit deeper on what a kinship's all about. Some of you will remember this from last time. To understand what they'd done. Now, a kinship covenant agreement, for example, if you've got two tribes, like we have here, tribe one and tribe two, and they want to come into some sort of relationship, some sort of covenant agreement. So they would, they would pull that covenant agreement together and they would say that their God would make sure that it was done right. And if, for example, tribe one defaulted on the covenant agreement with tribe two, then God one would punish tribe one and sort them out. <laughs> Notice that it's not God two that attacks tribe one, probably because tribe one don't believe in God two. What's the, everybody says, oh yeah, okay, that God, the green God with the big hat, well, yes, he can punish me. You don't, if you don't believe in a God, they've got no influence in your life, you see. So it was the God you believed in that held you accountable to the covenant agreement. Now, it was different in what Israel was suggesting to God to replace his offer of a grant covenant. Because the kinship covenant agreement they were offering, God didn't have a God above him to sort him out if he defaulted, which is a bit of an odd situation. So what God did was he swore to put his word above him and to, and to be held 
under his word and he promised to fulfill his side of the agreement and placed his word above him, right? But also the other strange thing was that Israel believed in God, so God had a dual role where not only was he on this side of the covenant with the agreement, he was also the God that had to sort them out if they screwed up, which they did, didn't they? Often. It made him punisher. It made God the punisher of his covenant partner, Israel. And if you remember, God had offered them a grant covenant, this take it all on a plate, have relationship and presence. He didn't want this. This wasn't God's idea. This was Israel's idea, right? So they backed off from a relationship and instead proposed a kinship covenant and put God in a position that he never, ever wanted to be in. And now God, because of the terms of the covenant agreement, was forced to punish them if they failed. And this was the covenant that they had as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God was committed to punish them if they violated the covenant and the wrath of God would come upon them. Right? Did you ever wonder where the wrath of God came from? Have you ever been in Asda? If you've ever been in Asda and you've followed a trolley with a single mom and three kids, right? And those kids just hate being in Asda. They don't want to be in Asda. They would rather be somewhere else. They're so bored out their skull being in Asda, so they end up fighting and bickering and picking things off the shelf. And the mother's trying to do a shopping and keep these kids under control. And by the time you get to aisle 10, she just blows. She just blows up completely and annihilates them verbally, the whole shop can hear it. <laughs> Is that what we think the wrath of God's like? That there was this whinging group of people wandering through the wilderness, moan, 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 and God thought, dearie me, you know. And so he thought, I'm just going to let them have it. That, surprisingly, that was not the wrath of God. The wrath of God was created by the law. According to Romans 4 verse 15, because the law brings wrath. It was the law and the system and structure of the law which meant God had to be wrathful, had to punish them if they screwed up. It wasn't him losing his blob at all. <laughs> Around AD 65, that's when Hebrews was written. That which was about 30 years after the death of Jesus, right? 30 years after the new covenant came into being because of Jesus dying on the cross, the establishment of the new covenant, right? So we have the new covenant there starting AD 30 and carrying on. But also, during this period of 40 years, the old covenant was still knocking around, right? God didn't honor it because he was now living within the covenant that he created, right? And he created the new covenant. So he didn't honor the old covenant because it was obsolete, but it was still hanging around, okay? It was hanging around until AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, 
the priests were destroyed, the genealogical records and the priestly records were destroyed, and therefore it was the end of the old covenant system. Now within the book of Hebrews, the danger was for the church, the temptation to creep back into the old temple arrangement. And that's what Hebrews is writing about because that's why Hebrews keeps saying Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to this. The, the writer is saying to the church, why go back to the old? Why be tempted to creep back to the old ways? Almost like the dog returning to its vomit. Why do that when you've got something which is superior? The new covenant of forgiveness was established through the cross. Jesus shed his blood to create a new covenant with the Father to forgive our sins and remember them no more. What happened was that God the Father was on one side of the covenant relationship and instead of having some inept human being or group of human beings on the other side that could not come up with the goods, Jesus, who was God incarnate man, stood on that side of the covenant agreement and we had God on both sides of the covenant we had total unity, nothing went wrong, and a new covenant was formed. A new covenant of forgiveness, which we benefit from, right? So, God didn't make Jesus pay for our sin, okay? He didn't pour out his wrath on Jesus. I know this is popular teaching in the church, that, that, that God poured out the wrath that had built up onto Jesus, and Jesus took it all on the cross, no, that's not what the church believed for 1,100 years. It only crept in in the 1500s with John Calvin and his legalistic background that introduced penal substitution, as it's called. That did not. Father God and Jesus together in partnership created a new covenant, one which forgave us the debt of our sins. It says in Hebrews 8 verse 16. See, I'm pinching Alan's teaching here. But it's not till the end of July, so you'll have forgotten all this by then. <laughs> so this is a sneaky preview. It says in Hebrews 8, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and he quotes from Jeremiah, 31 the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them declares the Lord this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel at that time declares the Lord I will put my laws in their minds I will write them on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear, which it did in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. So the question I'm often asked is, is there no wrath of God then after the cross? 
What about all the New Testament references to wrath? Well, after the cross, those who were in Christ in the new covenant, there is no wrath, no judgment, no anger, no nothing against them. But for those between AD 30 and AD 70 who were not willing to enter into the new covenant, wrath built up against them, right? And that's what happened in AD 70. God's wrath was poured out when, the, when Jerusalem was destroyed. So there was wrath after the cross because the cross itself really did nothing about wrath because wrath is all to do with the law. It's all to do with the law. The wrath of God was connected to the old covenant system which existed until AD 70. So does the wrath of God exist today? And I would say no. We are under a new covenant and the old covenant that created wrath has been removed. Remember, God always lives and relates within the covenant he establishes. I said a few weeks ago something which some people misunderstood, so I'm going to say it again to give you an opportunity to misunderstand it again. <laughs> and it was, the whole of the Bible is not the active will and word of God for us today. Right? Now that will really upset some evangelicals, but the whole of the Bible is not the active will and word of God for us today. And in your heart of hearts, all of you know it. All of you know it. How many of you live up to Leviticus? Eh? None of you. So don't be hypocrites. Right? The whole of the Bible is not the active will and word of God today because we should not be living under the Old Covenant. And there's lots of stuff in the Bible that's to do with the Old Covenant. Right? That's why when we read Scripture, we should read it so carefully. When was it written? Is this Old Covenant or is this New Covenant? Who was it written to? What were the circumstances? What can we learn from it? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me? But so many people will see a nice, poetic, almost Shakespearean phrase you know, in the Old Covenant and rip it out, stick it on a post-it note, and fill themselves with it. We should not be living or applying Old Covenant teaching we are in, under the New Covenant. New Testament scripture was written between AD 30 and AD 70 to an audience that existed then and many of the references to the wrath of God are to do with warnings concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. What we do is that we take some of those references and we apply them to the future, our future. Now, the only questionable one that I haven't got my head around here, around yet, is Revelation, right? Because Revelation is such a wacky book, and the symbolism in Revelation is such that it's not straightforward, right? So I'm parking Revelation, all right? <laughs> That's my prerogative, right? I'm parking Revelation. That should at least deal with three questions afterwards. <laughs> But the rest of the New Testament, the wrath of God, does not relate to the future, right? It related to the destruction of the temple, and therefore I firmly believe that there is no wrath of God at all now. God is wrathless, right? He wrath, he wrathers no more. 
So you may ask yourself, what on earth can we learn there for <laughs> from Hebrews 3? Well, remember, Israel were a hard-hearted, unbelieving lot of whingers, right, in the wilderness, and they moaned on despite some of the miraculous stuff that God did for them. You know, how he kept them alive, how he fed them, how he watered them, how he kept their the shoes okay and their clothing okay, and they just moaned and moaned and moaned. And they became hard-hearted. They became hard-hearted. And therefore, what we should learn from it is not to allow unbelief or hard-heartedness to rob us of a new covenant relationship with God. Because some of you may be sat there thinking, I don't really agree with what he's saying, which is your prerogative. And therefore, those some aspects to do with the teaching on the new covenant, you could harden your heart against. But the danger is you are depriving yourself of experiencing a new covenant relationship with God and doing away with some of the crap that you've learnt and that you've crap's a theological term by the way some of the <laughs> crap that you've learnt that you've allowed to stick and cling that's to do with the old covenant right so don't allow that to happen and that we should instead receive by revelation the full truth of God's grace and do not be content with religious rules and dead tradition, right? Even though dead tradition can be nice and predictable, it is by definition dead, right? Dead. Don't be content with dead tradition. What God calls us to do is to enter into his rest. That's what he wanted for the people of Israel, to enter into his rest, right? And faith is not work. Faith is rest, right? Being fully persuaded that what God has promised, he's done. In a world of heavy burdens, grace comes offering rest, right? Whereas unbelief keeps you busy as you actively resist the Holy Spirit, right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? you know? And it is, it is a hard task to have to keep actively resisting him. And, that, and we, all we're doing is, is expressing our unbelief. Whereas grace declares, it's finished. It is done. Right? The old covenant's all about do, do, do. Grace says, done. Do, now rest. It's done. We are to rest from the dead work of trying to earn God's favor. As Watchman Nee says, you can trust or you can try. And the difference is heaven and hell. <laughs> heaven and hell. Right, I'm going to get you to stand up and we're going to repeat a prayer and then we're going to listen to a song. So put your hand on your heart or wherever you want and repeat after me. Father God, Father God I, need your rest. I need your rest. I am weary of obeying my fears, obeying my, fears. my drives, my need for approval and control, need for approval and control. Of, working for my of working for my salvation. 
I offer all of this to you. I will no longer partner with old covenant thinking. I receive your freedom, your peace and rest in the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus, your son. Amen. Right, sit yourselves down. And we're going to listen to a track which lasts about four minutes. And then I'm going to hand over to Shola. So just listen to the words and take it in. <laughs> 